0: you did that brilliant reunion um yeah. radio didn't you the bride's head yeah. reunion when was that was that was only well
1: it was after 25 years so that must have been in 100 2000 and i don't know five no, there must be more uh, yes yeah, it, yeah okay it was more so, so it went out in 83 83 it was so filmed in 81 probably it? 2013 yeah. something like that yeah yeah i don't know when it was I never know when anything was. Right, okay. Well, but it did was it the it? 25th anniversary. How and brilliant. we all had to sit and watch it. Yes. Not all of it, but we sat in a row in, a, in Soho watching the first three episodes going, it's so slow. <laughs> <laughs> really? We all thought it was too slow. Did you
0: think that at the time, or that was the...
1: We didn't think it was too slow, but what we did think was that nobody very much would like it. We thought it was very niche. Yeah, Because of this material. Yeah, yeah. And that nobody would really be that interested in an aristocratic Catholic family um, and their children. And in fact, when it came out, uh, it, it had, a, it had a, a sort of respectful reception, but then it came out shortly after in America, and the Americans went bombing. Yeah. And that's when it sort of turned into off. a myth, really.
2: And they repeated it, didn't they, quite quickly, isn't that? That's in Britain memory. or in America? In Britain. I've got a feeling it went on yes, twice. Yes, yeah.
1: And it's still, it's still somewhere on a screen near you. Yeah. And it's interesting because it means that so many young people are seeing it. And I'm always amazed by people coming up and saying, I've just seen you in Brighton. Yeah. Really? How many things does one do in one's career that are still being shown 40 years later? That's amazing. It, is amazing. It is amazing. it is
2: amazing.
0: Did you watch the remake of it?
1: No. I, I quite either. deliberately did not because yeah. I'd, I'd heard tell that it was a very heavily edited version of it. Right. And I knew that that meant that there would have been compromises made. Um, and one of the glories for us of doing it was that in the event we filmed just about all of it. Which yeah. was also unprecedented. Yeah. And that was an accident of um, what happened, which was that there was a strike, technician's strike, three months into a seven-month shoot. Oh, wow. And nobody knew how long the strike would go for, so we were all twiddling our thumbs. None of us could do anything else in case. So we all went back to the book, and we all compared the book to John Mortimer's adaptation and came back saying, but there's this really good bit that John <laughs> hasn't put in. Yeah, And his, and then we had a new director, of course, because Michael Lindsay Hogg, who was the initial director, had another commitment, and he, although he said he would make himself available to do the principal photography, he wouldn't be available for the edit. Right. So Granada quite rightly said, well, we can't accept that. And then Derek Granger, who was producing it, came up with the idea of giving it to Charles. yeah. And Charles was very junior at Granada. Charles he, Sturridge, yeah. Yes, and he'd done, he'd done World in Action and he'd done Coronation Street, but he hadn't really done a major drama. Yeah. And Derek said to me, what do you think about me giving it to Charles? And I said, well, I think it's completely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Charles was already a friend of mine and he had been hanging around in my dressing room whenever we were in Manchester saying, I should be directing this. <laughs> I know more about this story than anybody in England because yes. he's from a Catholic family. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, brilliant. And so the combination of Charles and Derek was very lucky for us because they decided to rewrite the script and add in all these bits, which they agreed with all of us. We all had different bits that we wanted to put in. They thought all of them were very important. And then Derek was left with this problem of how to finance it. And he went with his begging bowl back to the American uh, backers and said, can I have some more money? And they gave him another million dollars, which now feels like peanuts. Yeah. But at the time, they were in for a million, I think. So they doubled their wow contribution. And then Granada, to their great credit, the big, the big cheeses at Granada, let it roll, even though they were terrified. And it took them, I think, about eight or nine years to recoup the costs. Gosh! Wow! Gosh! So it was—it was a big punt for them to let us do it in the way that it was finally made. Yeah, yeah. It is one of the reasons why people still want to see it. I think. Yeah. It's because it is very—it's very faithful. Yeah. If yeah. slow, in yeah. my view. <laughs>
2: But it's wonderful. Anyhow, I'm going to stop now and say hello to this week's instalment of As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me, the Critic, Sarah Crompton.
0: And with me, Nancy Carroll, the actress.
2: And as you may have guessed by now, our yeah. special guest, uh, Diana Quick. Hello. The actor. And we have um, been talking at the start about Brideshead Revisited, which I suppose is your kind of... It made you instantly famous. When well, it is
1: the thing that people... You know, if, if I meet new people somewhere at random, they nearly always want to talk about that, which in itself is remarkable, I think. And they always say, do you mind if we talk about it? Yeah. Like, I'm going to be resentful that they've remembered it. But, yeah, it is the thing that people sort of tag me with, I suppose.
2: And it was right at the start of your
1: career, really, well, so it, it oh, wasn't really the oh, start. OK. It was sort of ten years in, actually, because I, I started working as a professional actress at 19 while I was at Oxford by a fluke, which was that um, The Observer did a color supplement about what undergraduates at Oxford were wearing. Right. And it was curated by Sarah Boyd Carpenter, now Baroness Boyd Carpenter, who sits in the woods. Um, and I was one of about half a dozen people who they photographed, and somebody saw the picture and wrote me a very badly typed letter on BBC paper saying that he was a director and he was about to do a series, um, not for the BBC, but he was looking for somebody who could plausibly be um, a sociology graduate, and sociology was a very new subject in the late 60s, mm-hmm. um, it sort of emerged at the time that I was going to university. And he hadn't found anybody, so he thought he might go for somebody who was actually a student. And I met him, and it was a big series for American TV with Richard Harris as a social worker. Wow, it's I him, um, And it didn't work out. It, the series didn't happen. What was it he, called? It didn't ever it didn't happen. Ever happen. I didn't, you didn't no, ever make it? But okay. he stayed in touch. And um, ab- about six months later, I was doing a play. Um I was doing The Visit by Durham that playing the old lady. Yeah. And I said, Do you want to come and see me be it in the visit? And he came and on the back of that he offered me a Wednesday play for the BBC. Oh wow. And I was in my third year and it the, the recording fitted in exactly in the Christmas vacation. <laughs> oh wow. Just when I should have been revising.
0: Yeah.
1: And I decided I'd do it without telling my teachers. And at that time, you had to have an equity card to work. Couldn't work without a card, couldn't have a card without a job. And Mm -hmm. one of the few ways that you could get one was if the BBC offered you a contract. So I was really lucky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I got provisional equity membership. I had Beryl Virtue as my agent. Beryl Virtue, the legendary producer of comedy shows. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then she, behaving she, badly and all those, yes, did. yes, and all sorts of big, big um, comedy stars, yeah. were her clients at that point, yeah. And so she was persuaded to take me on. I don't know what she thought she was doing with me. <laughs> I don't think she had a clue what to do with me. But I had an agent and a job, and um, so that was about nineteen sixty eight, I think, something Gosh, like that, know. or seven sixty yeah. seven, probably. And once I had that, then I could do other bits and pieces of work. And um, some of my university friends, like Michael Palin and others, were now, they were quite a lot older than me because by a fluke I coincided. I overlapped with them because I was very young at university. Yeah. And they were just graduating when I was in my first year. And they got me in to do comedy sketches and review with them. So then they started working in television and they got me in to do. He uh, Palin and Terry Jones did a series called *The Complete and Utter History of Britain*. Yeah. For I think it was for Thames Television or London Weekend, and I used to come down and do. I played the damsel in distress in one <laughs> sketch, who gets rescued by Palin and then says, "No, go away. I really like the dragon." Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I've got a picture of it somewhere on it. Oh, really? How brilliant! Um, so I was doing little bits and pieces like that, and then and then I left and just, um, and got a job. I, I was friends with someone called Tim Dalton, yes. Later known as uh, Late as, known as one as of the Bonds. James. Bond. And Tim and I had been in the National Youth Theatre together <gasps> in the summer before I went to Oxford, and we'd stayed in touch. And he came to see me the summer that I left university and said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I thought I, I might do some more acting." But I was fairly clueless about it. I think partly because my first jobs had sort of fallen into my lap. Yeah. And he said, well, what she you doing about it? And I said, <gasps> what do you mean? He said, well, have you, have you written to anybody? And which was a new idea. And he sat me down and made me make a list of people who might have seen me in something or other, which was about four people. Yeah. And he said, okay, now write to them and ask for a job. So I wrote these letters. One of them was to Frank Hawser, oh, yes, who yes. ran the Oxford Playhouse, who yeah, I'd done produce. workshops with. Yeah. Right. And who'd seen me in a couple of shows. Um and the other was Felicity Kendall's late husband, Mike, who had been at Oxford before me. And they both offered me jobs. Oh brilliant. So what was which one did you take? Um well I took I did, did you I, see them both. I did the job with Michael at Oxford Palace. Michael yeah. Rudman, yes. Yeah. Doing, playing Helen I in Look Back in Anger. Mm. Of right. And then that finished. That was over the summer holidays after I graduated. And then I went to start working in the theatre and education team at the Oxford Playhouse, thanks to Frank Horser. And the week I started, um, we were doing a version of Macbeth. A letter arrived from the Department of Education and Science saying that there was a state studentship for me to do a research degree. And I'd applied mainly to... You know, I never owned anything I was doing at that time. I was just sort of drifting along, seeing what happened next. Mm. But my tutors had always been disappointed that I did so much acting. They were quite puritanical in those days, certainly at my college. And officially one was only allowed to do one play a year in a year when you didn't have exams, mm. which meant you could do one in your first year's summer term after prelims and one in the next year. And I did at least one a term, sometimes two, sometimes <laughs> you two plays off. and a review. Yeah. Um, and I had a pseudonym for a lot of them. Um, but they sort of knew what I was up to. And my darling tutor, who had great faith in me, had always said, you know, if you would only concentrate on the academic stuff, you could do rather well. So really, to appease her, I'd applied to do a research degree, never thinking for one minute that it would happen. Suddenly this letter arrived saying that there was money for me to go back and do my, you know, invented research degree. So I went to talk to the person I most trusted, who was the technical director of the Oxford Playhouse. He was a sort of senior stage management Mm. director called Ken Bonfield, who, you know, supervised probably eight shows that I'd been in and said, what shall I do? And he said, come back. He said, go back to university. You're very young. If you don't do it now, you'll never do it. Acting will wait if that's what you want to do. So I listened to Ken. And I thought, well, I can't, leave. I can't leave Frank Horser in the lurch because he's been very kind to me. Who do I know who might like this job? And I knew Annabelle Leventon mm. because she had been just leaving when I was going to Oxford. So I got in touch with her and said, are you working? And she wasn't. So she came and stepped into my shoes. And I went back to being a student for another two years. Well, I bet. was 20, so I was quite young for this to, to be happening too. So I then went back... And while I was doing that, I started. I mean, I I did concentrate quite hard on work for a year, but then I became president of the Ouds, which was the University Dramatic Society. First
2: female president.
1: First female president, and they which were Which was making, a big deal. Well, it? they made. They thought I didn't. You know, again, I was sort of so unaware of these things. I just assumed that women did things, um, and I hadn't been very involved in. In the sort of university politics of it, although I was quite involved in the women's movement, and I just assumed that I was being elected because I was an appropriate person. But then suddenly all the media were there. Yeah, everybody came out to talk. Mm-hmm. And and I was really quite amazed that they were making such a fuss about you. So I did that for a bit, and then and then um, I got offered another professional job, again by. Was it by somebody? Yes, it was by somebody who'd been a student actor with me and who was now producing at Granada. And it was to take part in a topical review. This was the time of, that was the week that was. And Granada was doing their own version of it with Three Men and a Girl, which was the formula, and was the formula for all the student review I'd been doing. Um, And it meant going up to Manchester for two days a week, taking any material you'd got... And they also asked me if I'd sing a song a week. And I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't dare do it now. And yeah. we used to meet her. I used to get up at 5.30 on a Thursday morning, drive up to Manchester, which is quite a long drive yeah. cross-country,
0: Yeah.
1: have a script conference, and everybody put their stuff on the table. And we'd, we'd sort of knit a show together. And then... Um, I'd do a a band call in the afternoon to learn the song, which had been written for me that week by two people I knew at Oxford. Chris Miller, who became a scriptwriter, and John Nicholson, who had a band called The Blue Monks. Mm. And then I'd learn the song and do a band call. Then we'd have a a sort of mishmash run through on Thursday evening. Then we'd do studio on Friday, and it went out live at 6.30 on Friday. Wow. And, um, and then I get in the car and try and drive back to Oxford. And I was usually so tired, I'd have to stop in a lay by and sleep for a couple of hours. And then go
2: totally ahead. different world, isn't it? Yeah. It's just kind of, I mean, how uh, when you look now at that time, I mean, presumably just none of it really happens now, that sense of things just organically leading on one from the other. It's also much more structured, isn't
1: it? Yes, and, and, and more, more uh, input from producers, I think. You know, they wouldn't, I think the difference is that they wouldn't have allowed uh, a producer so much autonomy, really.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I think but also the, there's a a thing when you're younger and it's a different energy and there's a sort of, you try things and you've got, without responsibility, like pre-kids and pre-mortgages and pre-that, we throw ourselves in the way of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. And so maybe we there's less editing because there's less to balance and so but I think you're absolutely right, it was a different time as well. But yes. there is something that happens when you're younger, which is that you yes. just you throw yourself at stuff, and you Dorothy don't.
1: Parker had a phrase for that. which used to talk about doing things without fear and without research.
0: Yeah, yes. yeah. It is no research. You go, oh yeah, okay. You know, oh, you think like,
1: no, oh, okay, I have a good. Yeah, time.
0: well,
2: I never really climbed a
0: building,
1: but yeah, no, no that's fine. That's fine.
2: You know, you do it, don't you? Cause I, I so utterly fail on that. I really did. I always, I might have had not have fear, but I always researched. I don't. Know. Oh, okay, okay. I was always well. You're the sensible one. Well, I mean, I'm yeah. sure
1: I made a complete mess of it, but. Well, you but I, I mean, I always got away with it. And actually, after six months, I gave up because I had to concentrate a bit on the work, on the academic work. And um, the person who took over from me was completely freaked out by having to sing a song after a day. Oh yeah. And I yeah. heard later that she had dried, you know, during yeah. transmission, which I completely understand. And yeah. it's a miracle that that didn't happen to me. Yeah. I just somehow always.
2: What was the point at which you thought, okay? I'm going to take the acting So say, why, why do you give up the academic? Because, I mean, you obviously could have carried on the academic thing. So at what point do you just think, well, right, now I really want to we do
1: make, it. We invented a new company, a new student company called the Oxford and Cambridge Shakespeare Company, which was people from both universities who wanted to go to America. And the deal was that we would do a Shakespeare play and a review. Right. And I was in both and um, off we went, and we had a, an absolutely gorgeous time playing in university theatres on the eastern seaboard, including, for me, a very nice thing, which was that uh, the summer before I'd been at Edinburgh, and the I was the girl in the review, of course, and the play which was being done was by this relatively obscure Bristol journalist called Tom Stoppard, and they were, they, he'd given them this play called uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, and wow. And yeah, yeah. the director had a breakdown. And Tom was there because he was very, very excited to have his play produced. Yeah. So Tom came up for the production and, and the director wasn't able to continue. So Tom took over directing. So he was very much amongst us. And he was so lovely. And we became very friendly. And, when, and it was just... That was in the summer, and then at Christmas we were going to America with this play. And when I told him I was going to America, it must have been it must have been a year later. I think I can't remember the chronology. It was too soon for his play to have been a big hit oh. at the National. Meanwhile, he you know the play had been taken up by the National and the rest is now a myth. But um, and he was very thrilled by his success. And really enjoying it. And when he heard I was going to be in New York, he said, oh, I'll put you in touch with my friends. I've got very good friends there. And they met me at the airport. Wow. You know, and I didn't have two sticks to rub together. And they gave me the best time in New York and took Lovely. me to the Saudis and oh. took me out to shows and all sorts of things. And, um, and I had just, I was 21 then, and oh, I gosh. had inherited 285 pounds from a little thing that my father had set up before he died. And I spent the money on buying a mini car. It shows what money did in those days. I bought myself a second-hand mini and a floor-length leather coat from Harrods. Oh, uh, wow. With a Mongolian lamb lining.
0: Oh, my God. It was quite
1: something, which I wore to New York. Ah. And the coat, more than anything, gave me access everywhere. People saw the coat and opened the door. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I had a very very nice time in New York, but it meant that when I came back, I was really rather behind with delivering my thesis.
2: What was your thesis on? That you. you It was
1: on. Well, it was the fancy name is a bit too fancy. It was essentially about the pagan revival. And it was about how at the end of every century, but in my case specifically, the end of the 19th turning into the 20th century, everybody got scared that the Industrial Revolution wasn't working and they wanted to go back to the countryside mm. and drink real ale and walk the Fosway and right. discover the great God Pan. And there were a lot of really interesting writers. My supervisor was David Cecil, Lord David Cecil, And he actually had been friends with some of the writers like D.H. Lawrence Mm. and Forster that I was writing about. So it was quite a nice thing to be working on. But David had a son, Jonathan, who was an actor. Right. Um, And I went to him and said, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't think I've left myself enough time. Should I take another year? And he said, do you really want to be an academic? And I said, no, I don't think I do. And he said, well, why don't you go and get on with acting? And if you, want, if you ever want to do more work on your thesis, I'm here. You can come and do it with me. And I sort of needed permission. So you go. didn't do it. You didn't do so it. So I jacked it in at that point. Right. Um, that was about Easter. And I came to London with nothing. I had My agent, Beryl, had gone into being producer. I had, I'd broken up with my boyfriend. I had nowhere to live, no agent. And I just went back to the beginning and arrived in London thinking, OK, um... <laughs> Yeah. And I got a job working a telex machine at the BBC. Where did you live? Um, luckily, my brother had a house that he was about to leave. So I had a room in the house. And then when he left, I took over the house in Camberwell. Right. Yes. And eventually bought it. Right. From him. So, and I, I lasted about a month at the BBC before I was fired for wearing skirts that were too <laughs> <laughs> short. Luckily, I got a job then. So yeah. So that was a very long answer to you no, yeah. right said was at the beginning, and then I worked that was when i was twenty one turning twenty two and I worked until and i was twenty nine when I did head. gosh
2: and I mean, I do think looking at your um looking at career because um we'll do we, we we've known each other quite a long time because Diana introduced me to my husband, which is so he my husband has known Diana even longer than um uh I have, but you, I've been married to him for 28 years <gasps> this weekend. So this open. weekend? This weekend. Oh. This weekend? Oh, yeah, we'll luxury. have to celebrate. Yes. <laughs> so, and yes, for 30, and for th- I've known him for 31, so I've known you for 31. But how did you two meet? How did you meet Dana? Uh, it was
0: with Peter Hall, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was 17 years ago, 18 years ago. Yeah, so I rely on you. I can't I'm remember. So hopeless. Do, what were you, you doing? never can
1: tell, right. It was before you, Burn before you and Joe had children.
0: Yeah, we were just married. I think yeah. maybe a couple of years into being married. Can't remember, but we yeah we opened in Bath. We rehearsed in Clapham.
1: Opened in Bath.
0: Yeah, it was when it was when we were rehearsing was when there was all those bombings in London, do you remember? That's right, yeah. So that would date it, but I can't remember when that was. Was it 2007? Yeah.
2: No, was it 2007? On I the buses, was, do you remember they bombed? I think it was 2007.
0: 2005. Do you know? Ooh, the producers? Terrible. is making signs that I'm getting
1: it wrong. Anyway, apologies. It was around that time. And, and Nancy was playing the glorious Gloria, and I was playing her i playing mother and daughter, daughter aren't hopeless we? Hopeless mother. You know, you were brilliant. You were a great feminist writer. Well, yes, but clueless. Really. <laughs> that was the joke about her, it. She thought she understood everything. And we did a crazy
0: tour, didn't we? And then we were, for about six months, we were in. At the Garrick. At the Garrick. Yeah. It was a long, long time. With long Edward job. Fox.
2: Gosh.
1: And yeah. others. Yeah. And was it was amazing. fun to do. Yeah. And Peter Hall was on a mission at the time. He was very, very keen. To revive the fortunes of George Bernard Shaw, who yeah. he thought had been unfairly sidelined, and actually he didn't really succeed because Shaw is still somebody who is not very often given a, a main mainstream. No, we were production. talking about this.
2: Uh, well, we touched on it last week because, uh, and and yeah, I think it's because he's quite hard. I mean, I he's a polemic like though, isn't he? I it, mean, it is it, quite difficult to sit through Shaw. Just it's because it's wordy because it's wordy because it is polemic and it is wordy and um, there are I mean there, there are periodic moments where everybody tries to revive him and it, it's an interesting thing you know Arms of the Man Pygmalion gets started Pygmalion is, Pygmalion started is coming so on done, again that's been yeah it's versus, coming on again yeah the old
1: Vic um,
2: but have you, yeah, have you just, done this,
1: just, just, I don't think I have no I think I, did, come I did one at the uh, National Theatre Studio which Brian Cox directed which we had great hopes for when Richard Eyre was running the national, which is not actually by Shaw, but is included in the published, collected works. Yeah. And it's called Gita's Atonement, and it was written by Shaw's German translator. Golly. And Shaw returned the favour and did an English version of it. And it's, a, I think it's a really good play. I mean, I might talk to Brian about trying to put it on again, because it's a very... It's a very fun, funny and timely subject. It's about, briefly, it's about um, Vienna yeah. at the time when psychoanalysis was a new thing. Ooh. And there's a university lecturer who is trying to promote the whole subject of psychiatric research and is slightly looked down on by his colleagues. Yeah. And he's having an affair with the wife of mathematics, I think he's a mathematics don, And the the play starts with them having a tryst, a love tryst. They have a love nest where they meet. And um, he has just been told that he's very ill and may die at any moment. So he doesn't want to make love. He wants to sort out his life. And he's trying to say to her, look, here's my major work, which is about the mind and the psyche, and I want you to promise me that if anything happens to me, you will give it to, to the person I nominate and make sure he publishes it. Yeah. And she says, yes, 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 and jumps on him. And he says, no, 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 we can't do that. Um, look, you have to promise me. And she says, well, who is it? And he says, it's your husband. Oh, and whoa, she goes whoa, whoa. berserk and says, why on earth would you give it to my husband? He despises everything you do. And, and the man says, well, that's the very reason I want him to do it. Because he, out of pride, he will make sure it is published. Good setup. And then, and then she has her way with him, and they start to make passionate love. And he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's weird. and that's the first act curtain. And she says, "You know, I want to proclaim our love to the world." As soon as he is there on the floor dead, she scarpers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, act two is everybody in Vienna, the Vienna chattering classes. Discussing who on earth—clearly he was in a love nest. Who was the woman? What was happening? Yeah. And the and her husband saying, "Well, I'll have to publish this dratted paper, even though it's rubbish." And the rest of the play is her having to stand by and watch while this uh-huh. this uh, thing is published. And eventually, of course, she's outed. It's a very, uh, I think it's great. Sounds really, brilliant. I wonder it why really it should sort have of been hidden though. Isn't I don't it? know. Maybe, this, maybe, now, maybe on
2: the back of succession, Brian can revive it. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's good. on stage at the moment,
2: isn't he? He's, he's about to come on stage the, in Long Day's doing, Journey yeah. into <gasps> yes, Oh, is he? That will be exciting. That's I think it was. That's it next true? year now. It's got pushed back a little bit. But what I was going to say was, was that you have, when I went back through your CV and, and looked at everything, two things struck me. One is just the sheer range of work you've done. But the other was that you have worked virtually solidly through. Sort of all ages of womanhood and all kinds of different roles, and you've done theatre and you've done film and you've done noticeably television um, with *Brideshead*, and I wondered how hard that had been to to always keep going, really, and just to because there is that you, there is that sense for, particularly for women, that it it is hard to sustain a career in that in that way.
1: Well, I I had um. I had an agent for a long time who, who then got very cross with me because I turned down. I discovered the pleasure of saying no at one point, right. partly learnt from Albert Finney, who was my boyfriend for a number of years. And Albert famously said no to extraordinary things. He said no to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh wow! He said no to Lawrence for Arabia. You know, but he and he his view was always that you should only do things that you really, really wanted to do, and that. You know, your career would take care of itself. And which for me was quite dangerous because I also started turning down things which with hindsight perhaps I should have done. What kind of things? Oh, I won't go into that market. <laughs> um, uh, well, I'll tell you one, which was that I was in I did I was in Ridley Scott's first film and had a wonderful time working with The Duelist. And he asked me to play the second female lead in Alien. And I didn't want to be the second female lead, so I turned him down. And he was really cross, he, because he's, he's a person who really believes in loyalty. And I turned him down. I turned Alan Parker down for Midnight Express. Hey. I turned John Schlesinger down for a British film. Because I just was waiting for the one. And I, I, was, I was in a very privileged position at that point, which was that I was being offered a lot of work. And I just thought it would keep on like that. Um, so I did turn a lot of stuff down, which maybe I should have got on with. And I sometimes made choices, which were perhaps the wrong choices. Um, but you
0: can only make choices based on the information you have at the time. I mean, yes,
1: that's right. And it's only with hindsight. You hindsight is a dangerous good. game to play with your brain, yeah. isn't it really? but I And I was never conscious of, oh, strategically I should do this. Right. Isn't, yeah.
2: I watched The Jewelist the other night. It was on, um, I mean, literally last week, I think. And I, I just, um, I mean, it's an amazing film, The Jewelist. And how did you feel about your character in it? Because she, she's really important and also her story isn't quite developed because...
1: No, she's there and then she's gone. Yeah. That's frustrating. Know. But that's how it is, in the you know, because it's from um, it's from a Conrad novella, right? And that's how it is. It's a universal problem. <laughs> yes. well, what universal. happened to that really interesting it, female actress? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, but I really lot.
1: loved doing it, and I I loved Ridley, and he was very modest. He he kept saying, I've never I've never directed actors before, so you'll have to help. You'll have to tell me. He came from commercials, didn't he? He came from commercials. Yeah, yeah. there were whole, well, they all did all that group. Alan Parker. Yeah, yeah, um, and a whole bunch of them, and I sort of knew them around London because I had met David Putnam socially. Yeah, um, and so I had met them, but hadn't worked with them, and they were all directing Hovis commercials and things like that. Mm. Um, and then I. I had bumped into David somewhere in Soho in a restaurant, and he said, oh, there you are. Can you come and audition for Ridley Scott this afternoon? And so I walked across Soho to another restaurant and sat down with Ridley, and he cast me then and there. And then when we started work... Oh, and then David asked me if I would, rather cheekily, I thought, asked me if I would ask Albert if he would be in the front, and they needed a name. So, and Albert very sweetly came and did a few scenes. Yeah, in it lovely. too, And lovely, when we were yeah. working, this is about Ridley saying he didn't know how to direct actors, there's a scene where uh, my character, who is the girlfriend of one of the two duelists, um, has a confrontation uh, where she says, you're going to get killed if you keep fighting. You have to stop. I'm scared you're going to die. And it's quite an emotional scene. Yeah. And... Um, and I thought, oh, i better cry real tears. So I'd sort of spent the morning sort of working myself up in the <laughs> corner. And, um, and when we came to do it, you know, I squeezed out some real tears on the first take. And then Ridley said, yeah, good, let's do another take. Oh. And I thought, oh, no, I've got to do it again. Oh, yeah. So anyway, the long and the short of it was that we did something like 16 takes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and when we got to about 15, I said, to Ridley, really, I, you know, I don't think I can do anymore. And he said, "Let's just do one more, and I'll tell you what. Afterwards, you can tell me which of the takes you like, and I'll print all of them, and we'll look at them together." So we did another take, and I nominated a couple of takes, and I thought the last one was real rubbish. Yeah. And when we looked at them, he was absolutely right. He just knew what he wanted, and it was to Because I was well, really so the last learning. one was the. Yeah. It was the one. And it I mean I had done a few films by then, but I was really learning about film. Yeah. And it was to do with not demonstrating. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um and I thought that Ridley was a very good director actually.
2: Yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, so it proved. I mean still just Still going strong and amazing. And the other
1: thing about that film was Frank Tidy, who was the lighting designer, the lighting cameraman, who had come from commercials. Yeah. And who was also very modest about his thing. But he was so painstaking. And there's a scene in that where, which is very beautiful, I think, which is all lit by candles. Yeah. Um, And it took hours. It took hours to get the candles because, you know, he'd start lighting them and arranging the cameras, and then by the time we were ready to shoot the first ones, had burnt out and had to go back again. Yeah.
0: Um, I did one of my first telly jobs with Albert Finney playing his daughter. Oh, did you? And, um, and Richard Longcrane, who was the director on it, said, watch him. He is one of the most generous and lovely actors, and you never need to be nasty. You never need to behave badly. And it's a myth that, you know, squeaky wheels... Get did he the or- say
1: that, or you just observed it?
0: He no, he said to watch all the older actors. Yeah. He said you should always be there for the reverse. You should always be generous yeah, to everybody. Absolutely. Always be polite. And and it is and he was quite cross, I think, about the the sort of rising number of people who had a sort of cool factor of behaving yeah. badly on set. And he said that everybody on this set is lovely and they are on this set because they are lovely and they are brilliant. Yes. And just watch the way they operate. Mm. And it yeah, was, it was amazing. It was Vanessa Redgrave and Jim Broadbent and all these people who were just glorious all the time and Ooh. there was total equality for all the green green bees that had all turned up yeah. to play all the kids and and he was so charming and and, and all this and, you know I didn't have vast amounts with him but he was always there for the reverse and yeah. the reverse just, is where you
2: yeah the yeah, yeah.
0: you there when you're off behind off the camera, camera. Yeah. and, and what
2: was it, what was the what was the um Show. So the, the gathering
0: storm, where oh, Albert yes. Finney played Churchill, was one of yeah. his kids. Can't remember which one. <laughs> Diana, Diana Churchill. I think. Yes, Diana <laughs> Churchill.
2: <laughs> oh, I, I, um, I never met Albert, but I, um, I loved watching him in, yeah, everything I could, because of course he came from Salford, so he felt he felt like a local boy in terms of growing up in Manchester. Yes. You know, you, my father was always incredibly proud of Albert Finney and the fact that he was on the stage at the National Theatre. Yeah. Well, and,
0: Albert
1: and, was always very proud of Salford. I mm-hmm. mean, he always stayed very connected to it. And we used to go back quite a lot. And he had a picture of his father's betting shot. His dad had been a street bookie when he was a kid, which was an illegal job. Oh, really? And then when book betting was legalised, his father, who was also called... A. Finney, I guess Albert, I'm not sure, had a betting shop which said A. Finney in letters on the glass. And I've got a lovely picture somewhere of Albert posing in front of his dad's shop. Yeah. Nice. And his uh, his sister lived in Lytham St. Anne's. Right. And so did his mum. And we used to go up and visit them a lot. Yeah. yeah. Pretty. And he he was very connected to his background always. But he used to say to me, I mean, I... I knew all that that you were saying, Nancy, about how everybody is equally important. Yeah, and he was properly democratic, but he he was also very jokey, and he used to say things like, "Be nice to everybody on the way up, and they might be nice to you on the way down." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so I know, it's
2: exactly true. And when when I look at pictures of you at that time, I mean, you were incredibly glamorous as a you know as you. I mean, that was the point that, you know, you. I think you've been photographed by Beaton, and you, there was that headline certainly after Brighton, wasn't it? About um, is this that you that you were the most beautiful woman in Britain? Oh
1: God, I, I still didn't. haven't lived that long. Ah, <laughs> so that was what I was going on.
2: So how how what how did how did that make you feel? I mean, what was your relationship to how you felt? Well, it you didn't
1: seem to, to have much to do with me, really. <laughs> right. ah. And you know people were very good at taking it down a peg or two. I just I think around that time I just put a little cottage in Suffolk. and I used to go down there and that, um, and there was always lots of DIY to do. And so I'd spend happy days down there by myself, sort of rubbing down paintwork and getting straw in my hair from the garden and so on. And a friend was coming to stay, and I had uh, that day, and I had quickly to go and buy something from a junk shop in a nearby village. So I you know, more or less, got the mud out of my nails and went over and got the thing and came back and carried on. Then my friend arrived and we went. happened to go back to the same village for supper that night to a little restaurant. And there was only one other table occupied in the restaurant. We were sitting, you know, I'd scrubbed up by now. And um, we were sitting there and there was sort of a silence in the room and I suddenly heard these two blokes at the other table going, oh, we had that Diane Quick come in this morning. <laughs> And the other bloke said, oh, yeah. Obviously not having a clue who this person might be. And the first voice said, yeah. Well, I tell you, I don't know what all the fuss was about. I look at her time. <laughs> Brilliant. So, you know, one learnt very early on to not be... Yeah. Not be, not read not, the press. Not, not, not believe. <laughs> I've done that ever since. I don't read the press. I don't read the Twitter sphere, and you know that's for other people, not for oneself. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm have to the carry same. Carry on doing what you're doing, really. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What were your what What were your sort of memorable parts around that time? What are the things that you? I mean, everybody does know you from Brexit, but what were the other things that you look back on and you think? Wow, I did that quite well, or I loved that, or...
1: I loved, uh, well, around that time, and before, before either of those things that you mentioned, I did The Changeling at the RSC. Right, yeah. And that was a, that was a rather extraordinary production. It was Terry Hans. And I'd, I'd just been in a famous disaster for the RSC. The, the script that I was waiting for, you know, I'd been turning all these movies down... And a script plopped through my letterbox, which was for a play called The Women Pirates by Steve Gooch. And it was about two historical characters who were women who became pirates in the Caribbean when Mm -hmm. women weren't allowed on pirate ships. And I thought it was fantastic. And it was me and Charlotte Cornwall. And Charlie was my friend because we'd been in rep together at the Bristol Old Vic and we'd become friends there. And and, um, so we were these two rival pirates. But the trouble with that show was that Steve had fought very hard for the right for playwrights to be present in the rehearsal room. (laughs) And he was so protective of his script, he wouldn't allow a single word to be changed. And it was a sort of agitprop musical about women in the Caribbean and what happened to them, which was that eventually, you know, it was the end of piracy and... They were being hounded by the British Navy because, for political reasons, who were trying to make peace with the Spanish, and eventually they ended up on one ship, and their ship was caught, and they were taken into Jamaica for trial. But by then, both the women were pregnant, and you did not hang a pregnant woman. Woman, so the two women survived, but all of the menfolk were hanged. Wow! So it's a great story, story, and it had lots of songs. But the trouble was that. uh, the director was doing his first main house production. Steve was protecting the script. And it was an absolute debacle. It just it just imploded, really. Right. And it got pulled after about a week of previews. Really? And both, all, both Gosh, Terry and the previews. Trevor that... were away, who were the senior directors. Yeah, yeah. So there was nobody to come and, you know, and Charlie and I and others in the cast were saying, you know, this needs cutting. This needs restaging. as it. you know, Nancy, it's very hard sometimes when you're in something. Yes. It's very rarely that one has the opportunity to step outside it and effect a change. So we went down with the ship. But yeah. luckily, before that happened, I was already cast in The Changeling, and which was Terry's production. And it was a very, very gothic, scarlet and black production. Right. Nice. And... Um, it, Great play. It became, it was a very big hit. People were queuing around the block to get tickets for it. Oh, wonderful. Um, and I, abs- I don't know why I haven't done more Jacobean stuff, because I absolutely love it. I think it's extraordinary, that combination combination of violence, sex, and, and gallows humour. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very timely for now, actually.
0: Yeah.